So over the last few years, I've kind of made it a personal habit to be more aware of the church calendar, or sometimes it's called the liturgical year. Now, to be clear, without my Google app, I would not show up anywhere. I would never be on time. I'd forget all of the significant days in my life. But for millennia now, the church has used this calendar, this liturgical year. And they've done so because we realize that the kingdom of God reorders all of life. You see, the kingdom of God is not something that, that like, you have your own compartments and like, you've got your work compartment, you've got your relationship compartments, you've got your community compartments, and then you've got the kingdom of God. And as long as you're putting a little bit of time and investment into each one, then you're good. In fact, the kingdom of God reorders all of it, brings it all together and says, no, no, everything now changes. There's not a decision you make. There's not a relationship that you have. There's not a pursuit that you have that is not impacted and should be influenced by the kingdom of God if you are one of its citizens. The kingdom of God reorders all of our life, including how we understand even the most basic things like time. The church calendar, again, is often referred to as the liturgical year. And you'll notice liturgical there is important. We follow a liturgy on Sundays because it's meant to shape and direct our hearts to point us to who God is. And the church calendar is also meant to be this larger liturgy that shapes and directs our time as well. It's meant to help us remember that God has a mission and it's meant to anchor us and give us a vision for our life according to his purposes and his plans. Now, I am not advocating that you delete your Google Calendar app. Like I said, we all need to know when and where to be at what time. Like your boss wants you to have that. That's a very good thing. We need to keep track of our appointments and our, and our uh, important days. But we also need the church calendar to give us a liturgy, a liturgy for living. It's meant to keep us from drifting into trivial living apart from Christ. And if you look at the church calendar as a whole, you'll notice that it tells the story of the gospel. And if you were here with us during Advent, you realize that Advent started the church calendar. For the Christian, the new year actually begins in December with Advent. It's the arrival of Christ. And it moves from each section of the gospel from the arrival of Christ to the passion of his death and the glory of his resurrection. It offers us a rhythm throughout the year to remember and reflect on God's redemptive purposes in the world. Now that brings us to today. Today in the church calendar is epiphany. Now the word epiphany means to show or to to make known. Something is revealed that previously wasn't known or revealed before. And historically, Christians have celebrated Epiphany because it highlights the groundbreaking reality that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God who came to seek and save the lost. And at the beginning of every new year, as our culture becomes obsessed with New Year's resolutions and aspirations for what we're going to do this year, we think, if I could only look a certain way. You've seen people on Facebook posting this stuff. Or if I could just do a certain thing, then I'd be complete. It's as if our whole existence was hinging upon our ability to accomplish this New Year's resolution. And what do studies tell us? By the end of January, most, if not all of them, will be completely gone and forgotten. These 
these New Year's resolutions, these false aspirations are actually telling us a false story. It's the culture's liturgy to try to shape and direct our hearts that if we will put our hope and trust in these transformation projects, if we could just inch a little bit more forward, if we could just do a little bit better this year, then we would finally feel complete. The culture's liturgy is a story of self-focus and materialism and romanticism. And all of these are really false stories that offer false hope that we can be better and feel better if we just try harder. How many of you are tired of trying harder? I know I am. And we know resolutions only last a month or two. White knuckle power fades and our focus is easily distracted. And as the year progresses, things change. And what seemed important at the beginning is no longer important anymore. Today, Epiphany offers a counter story, a true story. It says, as we begin the new year, what if we took the focus off of our self-improvement projects and put the focus on Jesus? What if he were our anchoring vision for this new year? What if we remembered and rejoiced in the beautiful reality that Jesus showed up, revealed himself, made himself known so that you and I could be known and loved and accepted. What would your, your year look like if you lived as someone who was known, loved, and accepted? See, vision is a picture of what could be with a conviction that it should be. And this morning, I want to share a parable from Luke's gospel where Jesus cast a clear and compelling vision to anchor our life. And he does so by sharing this vision through this parable. He talks about a story of a dinner party. And each aspect of this story will give insight into the vision that not only will anchor our life, but it also provides the direction we need to live a life of significance, meaning, and purpose. He's going to give us a vision of a feast that has a gracious host, welcomed guests, and gathering servants. And those are our three outlining points today. We'll see a gracious host welcomed guests and gathering servants. So let's look at Luke 14, 15 as we begin. Jesus said, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to them, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now our passage picks up in the middle of Luke 14. You can almost imagine it like a, like a, a movie or a story that sometimes, you know, it, as it pans in, you're kind of in the middle of something that's already been going on. If you read the rest of Luke 14, you realize that Jesus is at a dinner party at a well-respected Pharisee's house. Now one of the things I love about Jesus is that he ate with everybody and anybody. It's, it's actually, it's one of my favorite things about him. He would eat with the religious leaders as well as tax collectors and prostitutes. I mean, everybody, no matter who they were, Jesus would have a meal with them. And it puzzled everybody. Nobody could understand because he wasn't following the social norms and, uh, of the day. Nobody crossed social barriers and stepped on social taboos like Jesus. And so he's at this dinner party at one of these leading Pharisees of the day. Now, if you remember, Pharisees were the religious conservatives, okay? Their slogan, if we could modernize it, was make Israel great again. That's who they were. They had good intentions. They were desperate for religious reform. 
They wanted the people of God to so care about holiness and obey God's law that God would restore them and in doing so end Roman occupation. That was, kind of, that was kind of the political platform that if we could just get more holy, then God will show up and free us from our Roman oppressors. But in their good zeal, and I want to highlight that, that is a good thing to want to be holy. I'm not knocking holiness. But in their zeal for holiness, they created more rules than necessary. They didn't think God's law was enough. So they added more laws, extra things on top of God's already good law, and it became very oppressive. They would take pride in their ability to follow their extra laws, and they would put down anybody who wasn't following their extra laws. See, they made following God about doing only instead about being. So while they're at this dinner party, Luke tells us that the Pharisees were looking at him closely. They're studying him. They're trying to find a way to trap him, which is interesting, right? Like, aren't dinner parties supposed to be times of joy and and eating and merriment, growing together in harmony and friendship? And here they're looking to trap him. They wanted to find some kind of fatal flaw with Jesus so that they could expose him as a fraud. So they're trying to come up with these religious puzzles and these traps to get them to say the wrong thing, which is a bad move against Jesus. He's never trapped by our tricks. And so at some point in the night, Jesus tells a couple of parables to try to teach them about the heart of God. See, Jesus hasn't given up on them. He's trying to teach them what really matters when it comes to following God because they had reduced uh, God to merely a lawgiver and a judge and forgot that God is a loving father and a gracious host. And so he begins by saying, look, when you, when you have a dinner party, you need to be like God. You need to invite people to the party who can't offer you anything in return. See, don't just invite the well-to-do, and don't invite those who will pay you back with social and political favors, but also invite those who have literally nothing to offer you. Invite the poor. Invite the crippled. Invite the blind, invite the needy, invite all of the outcasts. Invite the very people that you spend most of your time trying to avoid. Invite them to your parties. And when you do that, you will be like the gracious God of the heavens, who is a gracious host. Invite those people that you think God has actually cursed. Make sure you invite the outsiders and the outcasts. And he's trying to tell them, look, there's room for them at the table too. Now, when Jesus told this story, it got really quiet, like awkward quiet. You ever been to a dinner party and like one song is ending and there's that gap of silence before the next song starts and then someone just perfectly says that awkward thing and everyone's like, oh my gosh, why did you say that, right? That's what's just happened. It's gotten really silent and there's always that one person at the party who feels like it's their job to kind of set things right, you know? And so they try to say something to kind of pull it all back together. And that's what happens here. See, Jesus has just crossed the line. They had a preset idea of who was in and who was out. He had stepped on all of their assumptions. And so this one brave guy breaks the silence and he says, yeah, Jesus, um, yeah, blessed is everybody 
who eats at the table of God in the kingdom, right? Like, come on, right? He's trying to lighten up the mood. He's trying to help Jesus out. And what he meant to say was, like, won't it be great on that day when we're all eating together? Like, all of us here will be there at the table. See, this guy assumes that everyone at this dinner party will be there. These are the religious leaders of the day. And so he assumes, like, it'll be great when we're all there together, Jesus, won't it be? Because we're like the good, moral, upright people. We're the ones who've tried to follow all the rules. And so Jesus tells another parable, because apparently they weren't getting it the first time. And so this time, he's going to drive his point even deeper. So he's going to tell this parable that's going to challenge their assumptions of what it means to sit at God's table and who is actually invited to the party. Verse 16, but he said to them, Jesus said this, a man once gave a great banquet and he invited many. And the time came for the banquet. He sent his servants out to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. So as we open up this parable, we're introduced to this host of the great banquet and he is throwing this amazing dinner party. He's invited many to come and feast with him. And now the time for the party has come. All the preparations are done. The table is set. The food is ready. Everything is ready. And the host sends out the servants to go to all of those who have already been invited and say, hey, the time for waiting is over. It's time to come to the master's house. The feast is ready. Now, in this parable, the host of this party is none other than God himself. And if you see from this, not only is he the host, he's not just merely opening up his home, but he's sent out the invitations. He's mobilized his servants. He wants everyone to come and receive. He's yearning that there would be more at his table. He desires that many would come and eat. Now, when you think about God, what primarily comes to your mind? Is it this? When you think about who God is, do you primarily And firstly, think about him as a gracious and yearning host. I don't know if you're like me, but when I was growing up, that's not the first image I had of God. Because I was a big time rule breaker. My first thought about God was that he's a judge. And he's going to judge me because I've broken all of his laws. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you in here primarily think of God as a judge? We know we've sinned. We've broken his law, and therefore, we need his forgiveness or else we're going to face our deserved judgment, right? Now, don't get me wrong. He is a judge. He will bring justice to all the wrongs, and that's actually really good news in a world where we struggle to know what is actually right and in a world where there's many injustices. It should be a warm blanket to you on a cold winter's night that God will make everything right. That should be a blessing. He will bring judgment on wickedness, but he is not primarily and fundamentally a judge. We also primarily sometimes think about him as a healer, right? We look around and we see there's a broken world, there's devastation, and we ask that God would come and be a healer, that he would make restoration. But again, it's true. He will wipe away every tear. He will bring restoration. He will bring healing because God is a healer. But family, I want to tell you, he is not primarily a healer. See, before both of those things presuppose brokenness, right? 
A judge has to judge because there's laws that are broken. A, a healer has to heal because things have been destroyed. But before there was things to be destroyed, there was God. Before there was anything, God existed. And so who has this God eternally and always and forever been? I would like to submit to you that ultimately and primarily, God is a gracious host. Now here's what I mean. Before there was anything to judge or anything to heal, he created the world. See, out of an overflow of his love, he created so that we could share in it. See, when you host a party, what are you ultimately doing? You think you have something so good that you want to share it. What is a dinner party? If you make all this food and you've set up the space and you've made it so that it would be hospitable to people, but there's no one there. The very act of hosting is to generously share it with others. And when in creation, we see God as a gracious host. He has something so amazing and so good that he doesn't need to share it, but he wants to. See, when I host a party at my house, it's not because I have this dying need to spend all this money and let you come and you know, trash the house and have a party. It's because I want you there. I so desire relationship and connection with you that at cost to myself, I'm willing to open it up and say, come, be welcomed here. Live here in these next few hours as if this was your home. Drink whatever you want to drink. Eat whatever you want to drink. My home is your home. It's the heart of a gracious and desiring and yearning host. See, God didn't need creation. He wanted creation. He desired it. He existed before creation in perfect Trinitarian union as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't create because he lacked anything. He created because his love was too good not to share. When you have something so good, you cannot help but share it, right? When you have something that is so good, you cannot help. Like, when I taste food at a nice restaurant and it's so good, I cannot be complete until my wife has tasted it and said, yes, it is good. It actually, like C.S. Lewis says, it completes the enjoyment cycle when I get to share it with someone. That's God. Out of an overflow of his desire to share his love with us, he created. He wanted to invite the world into his own loving life. Creation itself is the ultimate act of hospitality. And as his most treasured creation and honored guest, he creates man and woman, and he ushers us into this garden filled with good things. And what does he say to them? All of it I give to you. Enjoy it. I want to share in it with you. In fact, I'm going to walk around this garden with you. He welcomes us into creation and gives us a place to call home full of life and full of provision. And our first parent, parents experienced perfect union with God. Each day in the, in the garden was this opportunity to enjoy a meal with God, eating from anything in the garden except for one. God had set the menu. The menu was anything but not this. And in an act of rebellion, all of that changed. Our first parents chose to rebel and trade freedom. Unhindered community walks in the garden with creator for personal autonomy. 
They wanted to choose for themselves to define what is right and what is wrong. And they wanted to create an identity for themselves apart from God. Another way to think about it is the fall of humanity is a dinner party gone wrong. They rejected God as host. They said, you're no longer a host. We are. You're not deciding the menu. We are. They wanted to be host. They wanted to be in control of the meal. And if you read the Bible, everything after that is God working to bring us back to his table. In fact, his forgiveness and healing, his work as judge and healer actually served to bring us back to him, restored and reconciled and whole so that we can enjoy a loving relationship with him at the table where there's no tension at the party. We see this guest host theme all throughout the Old Testament with Abraham and Sarah, The Lord comes to them and they share a meal with him in Genesis 18. In Exodus, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and God sends Moses to deliver his people. And he doesn't simply say, let my people go, full stop. He says, let my people go that they may serve me and worship me and have a feast with me in the wilderness. He wanted to deliver his people out of bondage and slavery to have a meal with them. In the wilderness, on a daily basis, God fed his people with quail and manna. The promised land that he says, I'm giving to you, is a land filled with milk and honey. Isaiah 55, verse 1 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. See, when the prophet Isaiah is describing redemption, he describes it like a meal. Come and eat food that costs you nothing. The host has prepared everything. Come and eat. And when you look at the New Testament, you see this with Jesus. To his disciples, he says, come and follow me. It's an invitation. His first miracle was what? A wedding party. They run out of wine, and Jesus says, let's keep the party going. Some of his favorite parables were about lost coins, sheep, and sons who were returned. And every time one of them was restored and returned, they celebrated with a feast. Jesus fed the multitudes out of his own fullness with a a sack lunch from a little boy. He spent the years of his ministry eating and dining with people. So much that the religious elite, when they looked at Jesus, said, you're nothing but a drunkard and a glutton. Why? Because he was eating and drinking all the time. In fact, when Jesus described his own methodology for his ministry, he said the son of man, which is how he liked to describe himself, he said the son of man has come eating and drinking. He didn't say the son of man has come preaching and condemning. He said the son of man has come eating and drinking. In fact, in the gospel of Luke, if you read it all the way through, Jesus is almost always on his way to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. Eating meals with Jesus was his missional strategy. How did he choose for us to remember his broken body and shed blood? With a meal. We're about to do that. A meal. Through a meal, we are invited to take, eat, and drink and remember the sacrifice he made in our place for our sins. That's what the Last Supper is all about. He's telling his friends over their last meal that his body will be broken so that they can be made whole. 
His, body, his blood will be poured out so that they can be filled. And if you flip all the way to the very end, spoiler alert, revelation, the redemption of the world is pictured as a huge wedding feast where all of the redeemed are welcomed back to the table of God, restored to dwell together forever with him. This parable points forward to that ultimate feast. God is a gracious host. He's always desired to share a meal with us. What would it look like if you looked at God that way? Not as you, when you open the doors of God, it is not primarily into his courtroom, but it is into his dining room to have a meal with him. He's a gracious host who yearns for all to be restored to fellowship, to enjoy the fullness and goodness of his love. Now, what about us? Let's look at the next passage to see who the welcomed guests are. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. I do sympathize with that last guy. In those days, the host would send out invitations in advance so that people could mark their calendars, RSVP, and at the time of, of the party, because they don't have paperless posts and evites, they would send people by, on, on foot, by hand, to go say, hey, it's time. See, that first invitation was the RSVP. The second one was, it's time, let's go right now. That's how parties worked back then. And so on the day of the party, people start changing their RSVP from yes to no. And they give a bunch of lame sauce excuses. One guy says, look, I'm going to go out and look at this field that I've already bought. Right? If you've already bought the field, guess what you've already done? You've already looked at it. There's no need to go look at the field. It's not going anywhere. Staying right there. Another guy is going to check on his oxen. Again, nobody buys an ox without looking at it and examining it. He's already done so. Even if he has buyer's remorse, there's nothing he can do about it now. Those are his oxen. He should go to the party. Another guy says he can't go because he just got married. It's like, bring your wife. There's room for everybody. Invitations have gone out. Excuses have come in. And all of them don't add up to any real concern. The reality is the invited guests simply don't want to come. What's the point here? The invited guests have rejected the gracious offer to come, and they've done it at the last minute, and they have no good reasons. Look at verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servants, go out quickly to the streets and the lands of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the lame. See, the host hears that people are dropping like flies, and he gets angry. Now, when you hear that, don't think temper tantrum. Don't think God's up there in his dining room throwing dishes at the servants saying, what are you doing? This isn't a temper tantrum. It's deep and profound grief that the thought that the people will miss out. Have you ever made something so good and felt this deep grief that's, that's beckoned on anger that people would miss out on something so good? that there would be those who don't come to his table to share in his goodness and love. See, he's grieved that he has provided a feast 
to end all feasts. There is a feast coming, friends and family, where all of your hungers will be satisfied. There is a feast that satisfies the deepest longings of your soul. And I don't merely mean just your current physical appetite. I'm talking about deep longings of the heart. There is a feast where they will be satisfied. There's coming a meal where we will drink a drink that brings an end to all joylessness. There's coming a meal where you will dine and you'll never feel alone. There's coming a day when you will sit at a table and you won't be a stranger. And there's coming a day when you sit down and you will finally be home. And the host is grieved at these invited, welcomed guests. His friends, family, and neighbors have turned him down. Now, don't miss this. Does their absence stop the party? No. It's not as if when they say no, he says, well, I guess we'll just pack it up and do it another day. The party must go on. It doesn't stop the party. The host determines the time. The table is set. The food is ready. So he sends his servants out to send out more invitations and to gather people to his table. So he says, go to the streets, the lands of the city, bring in anybody, the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled. See, his table, the master's table is open to anyone, regardless of pedigree, regardless of status, regardless of the achievements and what you can bring to the table. I love this. This is the God of the universe eating with a bunch of nobodies, people we would overlook and neglect everywhere. Now, this is scandalous. Remember who's listening to the story. This is scandalous to the religious, and it's unthinkable to the irreligious that his grace would be so inviting and so scandalous. Now, for us who've been invited in, what should this stir up in us? Not pride because we've gotten an invitation, It should stir up in us a posture of gratitude and humility. Gratitude because we're welcomed to his table when we did nothing to deserve it in the first place. In fact, it's not just that we're undeserving, but we're ill-deserving. We shouldn't be at his table. It should produce humility in us because we realize we are not better than anybody else. At one point, all of us were enemies of God, but through Christ, he has made us family, and that has purchased for us a seat at the table. Now, don't think about this meal. Don't think about this banquet like a potluck dinner where you bring your very best dish and contribute and contribute it to the meal. You don't have to prepare anything and you do not bring anything. In fact, to bring a meal to a meal like this, to bring a dish would be um, awkward and weird. This is not for you to bring your own food. It's already been done for you. This isn't a restaurant where you have to pay to eat either. See, at God's table, you come just as you are. You can't earn it. You simply don't deserve it. It's not a meal you can earn. It's a meal that you simply receive. And that confronts us no matter where we are this morning. See, some think right now, some of you, in the quietest recesses of your heart, you think, no, I deserve to be invited. God had better invite me. You think you've done a good job at living, and you probably have done better than most of us. I'll give you that. But you think you've earned a seat at his table, but that's not how this meal works. And there's some in here today who think, I am no good. 
I will go out to my mailbox and there won't be an invitation. God doesn't want me at his table. And what this parable tells us is that both of those attitudes are simply wrong. Everyone in here is a welcomed guest. We don't deserve to be there, but we're welcomed there all the same. We bring nothing. All we bring is ourself. In her book, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, she's a psychologist who's spent her career researching um, empathy and vulnerability. She's got a couple of great TED Talks you should go check out at some point. But she writes this, belonging is the innate human desire to be a part of something larger than us. Because this yearning is so primal, we often try to acquire it by fitting in and seeking approval, which are not only hollow substitutes for belonging, but they're actually barriers to it. Because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic and perfect selves to the world. Only then will our sense of belonging uh, be greater, or, or our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. She has stumbled upon a profound truth. What she's saying is, you don't have to work to earn God's favor or try to impress him. In fact, every bit of trying to do that actually offers a barrier to your place at the table. Look at me. Right now, where you are, no matter where you are, you are loved. You're already invited. All you have to do is accept the invitation with gratitude, humility, and don't miss this, come. You have to show up. You can't just take the invitation. You actually have to respond. His invitation is not a right. It's a gift. But in order to accept his invitation, you have to respond and come. So have you have you responded? Or did you put it with the other junk mail? Did it go in that drawer where everything just kind of accumulates? What have you done with this invitation? Have you responded? Have you given some excuses? Have you considered other things as more pressing and urgent? God, I'm going to wait and see what other invitations I get. And as long as nothing else better comes along, I'll come to your party. Have you considered other invitations more valuable? Or have you responded to God's invitation to be a welcomed guest at his table? Listen, it's the most important invitation you'll ever receive, and it's the one you simply cannot afford to put off. We have to make a call. Now let's look at this last section to see the gathering servants. Verse 22, and the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done. We've gone out, but there's still more room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Did you hear what he just said? He said, sir, what you've done has been asked and there's still more room. And the host says, then go out even further. Go out even further and compel them to come in. Why? Because I'm a gracious host. I want every seat filled. There's plenty of food. I don't want it to go to waste. He's saying, go and tell of the feast that awaits those who will come. Now, here's the beauty of this parable. 
The invited guests are those who have yet to experience the joy and satisfaction from the master's table. But for those who have, who've already seen the goodness and joy of the master, we get the privilege of not merely being invited guests. We get the privilege of being gathering servants. We exist as the people of God to invite people into this banquet of joy. And that provides all of the meaning and purpose to your life. And that's the vision worth living for. Why do you live where you live? Why do you work where you work? Why are you in the family that you're in? Why are you at church in this community? My brother and sisters in Christ, it's because you are a gathering servant. You've been sent out into these communities and these workplaces to compel people to come to your father's table. Every environment, every relationship, every activity we do is an opportunity for us to invite others to our father's table. Jesus is telling this parable to say, my father's table is not full. Will you go with me to gather more? See, the truth is each one of us has access to friendships and relationships that no one else in this room has access and privilege with. The kingdom of God is not gathering by force, but we're gathering by loving invitation, right? You heard what he said. He says, compel, not coerce. We're not meant to beat people up and drag them along. We're meant to merely send out the invitations. We extend to them the same kind of hospitality that Christ has extended to us. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 15, 7. He says essentially, welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. How did Christ welcome us? We have a seat at the table because Jesus was willing to give up his. That's the only reason. He got up from his place of honor and he laid down his life so that there would be no hindrance to any to come to his father's table and dine. So what does that look like for us? The way we define hospitality at Seven Mile Road is we say it like this. Hospitality is relational generosity. Now, here's what I mean by that. Relational generosity seeks to be relational rather than transactional. Like you can give an invitation to somebody. That's the mere exchanging of information. That's not what this is. It's not a mere transaction. It's not saying, hey, my father's table has many places. Do you want to come? Okay, if not, great. If not, good. Okay, let's go. No, it's not a transaction. It's not just getting information out and then walking away. It's based on a relationship. See, sharing the good news of the gospel is not an exchanging of goods and services and information. We need to seek genuine friendships with people not merely as projects, but because you actually want to be friends with them. You want to go to their parties. You want to be where they are. You want to be generous with your time and talents and treasures because you actually value them and they're actually worth those investments. The gospel tells us that he welcomes the least, the last, and the lost to his table, and so should we. So we look not only to the people that we would enjoy spending time with, but also people that we may not be as eager and excited to. We should be available and accessible, inclusive and flexible, willing to be uncomfortable to anybody with hearts that seek to serve. In short, the way we say it here is the church should be the place where neighbors become family, where we eat together 
See, gospel hospitality is about welcoming people into your life, treating strangers like they were your very family. And when you start to love people like that, you will see God work through you in a profound way where people are actually transformed as they receive the invitation to join you at the meal. Friends, let's give them the gift of our unhurried presence. One of the things I love most about Jesus is every time you see him interact with someone, he was fully there. It's as if in that moment, even if he had other pressing things, the very person he was talking to was the most important person on the planet. He was the least distracted person that ever lived. There was this great article in a food and wine magazine several years ago called How to Host Like a Pro. Listen to what the writer said. He said, hospitality is all about human connection and making people feel comfortable. Genuine hospitality only exists if you can forget about all the other things you have to do and focus on the people you are with. See, people aren't coming over for a life-changing meal. They're coming to spend time with you. It's perfectly summarized. What would it look like How would our relationships change if we gave people the gift of our unhurried presence? If we didn't worry so much about how things were decorated or if if we had the right amount of seasonings, but we realized people are coming into our spaces to spend time with us. So a couple practical steps to live this out. First, write down three people's names that you already know who needs to be invited to God's table. And I would encourage you just to start praying for them. I'm asking God to give you opportunities to spend time with them and to build genuine friendships with them. Maybe you already know who those three people are. You don't have to post this on social media. In fact, I'd discourage you from doing that. But just think about who are three people. We often think, man, I'm going to change the world. That's too big. Let's change right here. Who are just three people that you know need an invitation to the table? And I'd encourage you to start praying for them. And start asking, God, help me see what opportunities are already there for me to connect with them further. And then second, just like Jesus, pick a meal of the week. Maybe it's breakfast, maybe it's lunch, maybe it's dinner. Or day of the week, we're going to be intentional and strategic with that time. So you can either waste your meals as simply means of sustenance, or you can leverage them for the mission of God. What if you as a as a single or as a family or whatever, said this meal, Thursday nights, is our missional meal. We are going to seek to invite friends and family, neighbors and and, and people in our networks to come eat at our table and build genuine friendships with them. Maybe, Maybe in your workplace you say, Wednesdays at lunch, that Wednesdays, the first Wednesday of the month is my missional lunch meal. I'm going to invite a coworker to lunch with me. I'm gonna buy their meal and just build a friendship with them. What would it look like if we leveraged, not adding things to our lives, you're already going to eat those meals, but you, instead of addition, you looked at it as intersection. I'm going to take these things I'm already doing, but now I'm going to season it with gospel intentionality. See, if you routinely share meals with non-believers and you have a passion for Jesus, guess what? You'll be on mission. It doesn't have to be this overly complicated thing. Meals will create natural opportunities to build friendships where you can share your relationship with God with them. See, they're going to share with you the things that they love. They're going to tell you about all the things that are going on in your life. And guess what? You just reciprocate that. You tell them about the things that you love. 
Tell them about the things that you're doing, the things that you're called to. See, Jesus didn't just preach to people. He ate with them. And it was often through these meals that people found the grace of God. Now hear me before we end. You don't have to have all the answers. It's very likely people are going to bring up questions and concerns. And it might be the most profound thing for you to go, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But let's engage that question together. People do not move towards belief because they get all of their intellectual questions answered. They move towards belief because of love. That's what really compels and draws people. And your life and your story is your greatest tool of evangelism. You just say, I don't know the answer to that, but here's what I know. I was blind, but now I see. I was a stranger, and then I was loved. And you just tell your own story. It's a powerful transformation story. See, the host did not send out flyers and pamphlets with compelling arguments to get people to his table. Who did he send? He sent people, real people, who simply shared with others, we found the master's table, and there's a seat for you. So as we step into this new year, let's make the most of the days that God has given us. For some, that needs to begin with rethinking who you th- what you think about God when you think about him. Maybe the most transformative thing today would be just to start seeing God as a gracious and yearning host not a judge you need to dodge by or not some healer who needs to heal every problem in your life, but a yearning host who welcomes you to his table. For some, you need to accept the invitation and stop making excuses. I don't know another way to say it. For some, that's the most important thing you need to do today. And for others, we need to really realize, we need to realize our call to be gathering servants. See, Jesus didn't come to help you accomplish your resolutions. He didn't come to make you go from good to great. That is not a vision worth dying for. That's not a compelling vision. But he did come to make dead people alive. He came to take you from being an enemy to being a welcomed guest at the table. He came to invite you off the street and give you a meal that will change your life. He came to give us the joy to be his gathering servant so that the Father's table would be full.